1: tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdill, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's March 2021, and you're listening to Episode 226, which is a conversation about the 2019 best-selling book, The Universal Christ, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe, by Richard Rohr. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Douglas Groteis, who is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary and a longtime contributor to the Christian Research Journal. He is the author of several books, including Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, A Philosopher's Lament. Doug has written an online exclusive in-depth book review for the Christian Research Journal, and his review is called A Heretic's Christ: A False Salvation. And you can read his article when you subscribe to our magazine at Equip.org. And access to our online exclusive articles is one of the benefits of being a subscriber to the Christian Research Journal. Doug, it's good to have you on.
2: Thank you. Happy to be back.
1: Well, as I mentioned, we're going to have a conversation today about Richard Rohr, who is a Roman Catholic priest, and people might have heard our Episode recently on the Enneagram, and I would point people to that episode, which will be linked on the landing page to this one, where we talked a little bit about him there. And you know, that he has been around for quite some time and he is a Roman Catholic priest. But besides the fact that people, evangelicals, might know him from the Enneagram, what else can you tell us about Richard Rohr and his background?
2: Well, he's a very popular author, not just among Roman Catholics, but increasingly among evangelicals. He's written, I believe, over 40 books. And in 1987, he founded something called the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he's been a strong player, strong force in what's called the contemplative prayer movement. Uh, Oprah Winfrey has interviewed him twice. If you Google him, you will find him everywhere, certainly. And uh, this book we'll be talking about, The Universal Christ, when I looked at it on Amazon, was listed number eight in Christology and number nine in Christian ethics. And uh, Rohr has got a big following. He's someone who is viewed as Christian, but very expansive in his Christian beliefs, that he doesn't want to limit truth to Roman Catholicism or even to Christianity. He believes that that God is an active force throughout all of the world and all of the world's religions. So on that score, he's very popular to people who don't want to be all that focused, or they might say narrow, in their understanding of God and salvation.
1: So you mentioned that he is part of promoting contemplative prayer. And I know in recent years there's parts of contemplative prayer that have been rediscovered. I know specifically at Biola's Center for Spiritual Formation, the parts of it that are good. But there's other parts of it that are not good, especially as how he approaches that. So how does he approach contemplative prayer? As you said, he has beliefs that, you know, go beyond Orthodox Christianity when we think about him embracing other religions, for example.
2: Right. Well, his take would be that Christianity in its different forms is a mode by which we can apprehend God, but that God would be working universally in one way or another through all the religions. But with contemplative prayer, the good part of it is that you can certainly meditate on scripture. You can learn how to focus your attention on God, the truths of God. You can learn how to eliminate or at least cut back on distractions that could keep you from doing that. And if that's what you mean by contemplative prayer, or really lingering on a particular scripture, the meaning of it, that's sometimes called lecto divina, although that can be abused too. But uh, the part of contemplative prayer or the elements of it that are questionable, actually wrong, are when you detach your thinking and your focus from who God is as revealed in Scripture. Uh, There's one part of contemplative prayer, as some people teach it, where you just let go of your thoughts. It's like you put your thoughts into a stream and just let them go, and you become entirely passive to see what thoughts or images God would supposedly give you and that's just not a biblical understanding of spirituality because God is a God who is personal who is holy who communicates through scripture and the Holy Spirit Jesus says is the spirit of truth he says that three times in the gospel of John in chapters 14 15 and 16 so the biblical model of sanctification is that all of us our mind our emotion, our will, our imagination, all of us should love God and should receive truth from God. But sadly, when you start to blend Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity, you can develop a form of spirituality that is what's called syncretistic. It doesn't take scripture and the God of the Bible as the final standard and the ultimate revelator. It tries to blend and mix and match and mingle a lot of things, And whenever that happens, the essential Christian elements tend to be corrupted. Now, you can find some truth in other religions, certainly. I've been teaching comparative religion for over 30 years, and all truth is God's truth. But if there's a claim in another religion about the nature of meditation, let's say, that contradicts a biblical understanding of God and our awareness of God and how to discipline ourselves to know God better, If you find a hard contradiction, then you have to go with the scripture and not with something that contradicts it, something that undermines it, actually.
1: So why is his teaching so popular among Christians? I mean, obviously, he was quite popular in the Roman Catholic Church when he burst onto the scene. But increasingly, as you noted, he is finding resonance in his teachings with Protestant Christians. So why do Christians across all traditions find his work compelling?
2: I think there are several reasons. One is his style. I do not find it compelling at all, but he tends to write in a rather jocular, lighthearted, witty way. I think that appeals to people. Also, he's a a Franciscan priest, so when you see him, he has his robes on and he has kind of a twinkle in his eye. And as I said earlier, he, he tries to operate from a really big tent. So I think some Christians feel a little uncomfortable that Jesus is the only way, or they're really worried that other people from other religions won't be redeemed. And he has this way of using Christian language and referring to the Bible quite a bit, usually out of context, and that appeals to people. And then there's this general concern that we want to deepen our awareness of God and our obedience to the Lord. Uh, We want to be less stressful, more happy. Uh, We want to understand the character and the power of God. And he's someone, I think falsely, offers this deeper, richer awareness of God. Let's not limit God to our own tradition. And let's, let's really understand the so-called deeper meaning of salvation and of Christ. So he uses the Christian vocabulary everywhere, but he doesn't really use those terms like salvation, God, Christ, in a way that fits scripture or a way that fits the historical teaching of a church. Now, as a Roman Catholic, he is supposed to believe orthodox propositions. He should be able to recite the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, without any mental reservation. But what I found in my study of him is that he uses the words, but he doesn't believe the concepts as rooted in Scripture and the church tradition.
1: Well, the majority of this podcast is going to really be focusing on a very in-depth review that you did of his 2019 book, The Universal Christ, How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe. And it became a New York Times bestseller and now is even in paperback and so forth. And, you know, even Melinda Gates has endorsed this book. But in the book blurb, I think, you know, Christians would come across this and say, wow, I I really agree with this. I mean, it, it says on the blurb, you know, he draws on scripture, history, and spiritual practice to articulate a transformative view of Jesus Christ as a portion of God's constant unfolding work in the world. And so I think a lot of Christians would say, yeah, I really want to know about Jesus Christ's work in the world. So,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and you know, the, the title is called Universal Christ. What wouldn't be good about a book like this?
2: Well, exactly. It's very appealing because Christians know Jesus as their, as we say, personal savior and as a person of history, but Christ is also the creator of the universe, John 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things are made through him. Without him, nothing that has been made has been made. So John 1.1 1, 1 and 2, actually. And you have language about Christ's universal presence and universal power throughout Scripture. You see it in Colossians 1 and 2. You see the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So with Christ, you have the particularity of Jesus, who is the Christ and the only Christ, who ever was, is, or ever will be. But he is also more than just one single individual in the pages of history. He is God incarnate. So there is a universal aspect. For example, anyone anywhere can come and ought to come to Christ. So we send out missionaries. We try to reach our unbelieving friends with the truth and the power of the gospel. So this is a universal truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. So I quoted John 14:6 and Acts 4:12, or First Timothy two uh, in verse five says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now Richard Rohr comes along and he says, Our typical Christian understanding of Christ is too limited. We don't understand the depths of Christ. We don't understand the universal presence and power of Christ so he is supposedly going to expand our knowledge of who Christ is now it's interesting what his method is I want to get to some epistemology here because I deal with this in the review if we want to know what scripture teaches about God salvation morality anything we should have a prayerful humble receptive attitude. And we should also be as logical as we can be. So, Scripture says that we ought to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 2. And Peter says, uh, In your minds, be mature. So, if I want to know what Scripture says about the nature of God, that God is one God, but the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all divine, then I've got to think through exegesis, theology, and so on. Now, it's interesting. Given Rohr's background in contemplative prayer, which can marginalize the rational aspect, he says this, especially as we begin, you must allow some of the words of this book to remain partially mysterious, at least for a while. I know this can be dissatisfying and unsettling to your egoic mind, that is E-G-O-I-C, your ego mind. Which wants to be in control every step of the way. Yet this is precisely the contemplative way of reading and listening, and thus being drawn forward into a much larger field. And uh, larger is capital L, and field is capital F. Well, there's a warning sign right there. I mean, there's a whole group of red flags just waving in our face. Because the egoic mind. I mean, we have a mind, we have an ego. We should want to be humble and accept all the truth we need to know. And I don't want to be drawn into a much larger field. I want to know, and everyone should want to know, what God has revealed. How can we come to justify true beliefs about the Supreme Being, the Almighty, in relation to us? So, see, he's setting up the book. In such a way that if you critically critique it along the way, you're not using the right method. You know, if you think what he says is unbiblical or illogical or even sounds heretical, and I think it is heretical, i use that word. We're probably just in our egoic mind, our narrow, limited self, not, as he says, the true self. The true self. So you know I'm going to go back to if I just make one more point uh, from Scripture here. Uh, contrary to Roar, it is right and healthy to assess truth claims by logic and Scripture. So consider the Bereans. We hear about in Acts 17:11. 7, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, says they were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message, this is Paul's message, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scripture every day to see if what Paul said was true. So that would be a good method for Richard Rohr. Whenever he says something, examine the Scripture to see if what he says is true. And i found that often it is not true.
1: You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. From the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal, today's guest is Dr. Douglas Grotheis. He has written an online exclusive in-depth book review for the Christian Research Journal about the universal Christ by Richard Rohr. His article is called A Heretic's Christ, A False Salvation. You can read this review if you're a subscriber to our magazine by going to equip.org and accessing it. Access to our online exclusive articles is one of the benefits of being a subscriber to the Christian Research Journal. You can subscribe at our website, Equip.org, for 33 50 and we'd invite you to go on over to our website because you can access hundreds of resources there, whether it's video, audio, or many decades' worth of articles. But for these particular recent online exclusive articles, you do need to be a subscriber to our journal. Now, there's other ways you can partner with us, and we would appreciate it if you would rate or review this podcast, particularly at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And the other thing you can do to thank us for this content, which is brought free to you, is that we would invite you to tip us for our content. It's easily done at equip.org under magazine and postmodern realities at the drop down menu you can go to any of the landing pages and you'll find a link there where you can tip us for this content. And thank you for your partnership because your partnership helps us to be able to partner with our writers who work for us by providing all this great content and we do give them a remuneration for their work for us. They do not write for us for free. And so subscribers who invest in a subscription with us they are helping us to pay our writers and give all this great content. But again, our website is not under a paywall. So feel free to browse many of our past articles from years ago, and they are all still very relevant today. And thank you for your partnership. So you were talking about how Hugh's describing who Christ is because you said that he thinks that our understandings of who Jesus is, is limited. Do you think that's the main reason why he wrote this book? Because we are not understanding in his mind fully who Jesus is, or are there other reasons why you think Mm -hmm. he, you know, unpacks what he believes in this book?
2: Well, I think that's it. He wants to appeal to what he calls perennial wisdom. And this is a school of thought, which is not biblical. It's called perennialism. And the idea is that God is equally revealed and equally present in all the major world religions. And that God is really not a being distinct or separate from the world, but he is the world. He is the universe, or he is the inner essence of the universe. So this is called pantheism. Everything is God. Everything is divine. Or it might be something called panentheism, which means that the world is in God, and God is in the world, and they're constantly interacting in one way or the other. So let me quote him from page 22. No one religion will ever encompass the depth of such faith in God's love. So he seems to be saying that Christians need to understand what other religions say about God's love, or that our Christian understanding from Scripture and tradition, ultimately Scripture, is not really adequate. And that just flies in the face of uh, the great teaching of sola scriptura, that Scripture is the final test for every truth claim to which it speaks, and also the sufficiency of Scripture to tell us what we need to know To find God and to serve God and to love our neighbors. So he wants to draw on this perennial tradition. And he says this on page 16. There is only Christ. He is everything and he is in everything. Well, that's pantheism. There is only Christ. In fact, he claims here, Rohr claims, to be quoting Colossians 3.11. As there is only Christ, he is everything, and he is in everything. And I challenge our listeners to go to any translation of the Bible, and you won't find that. It has to do with the supremacy of Christ, the universality of Christ. But it doesn't say there is only Christ, because the very idea of the Incarnation is that God came into the world at a point of space and time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Logos was there at creation, creating, John 1, 1 and 2. So there is not only Christ Christ. Christ is the second person of the Trinity, to use theological language. And he does have this universal power and presence. But I am not Christ. I belong to Christ. I worship Christ. You are not Christ, but you worship Christ. You belong to Christ. And we can say that he is in everything because God works out everything according to his plan, and he is not far from any one of us, as Paul says in Acts 17. But Rohr is doubly wrong here. First of all, it's a mistranslation. And secondly, it's a theological heresy. So what he is trying to do is to make a distinction between Jesus and Christ. And in one way, this is legitimate. In another way, it absolutely is not legitimate. So let me talk about the legitimacy of it. The incarnation, as I said, occurred in space and time. It actually began at Christ's conception in the Virgin Mary. So as John puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So the Logos... The second person of the Trinity took on human nature at a particular point in space and time. So the Logos existed before Jesus of Nazareth, the man, existed. Okay? So it's not like Jesus popped into existence out of nothing. The Christ has always existed, and then the Christ we can put it that way, the Logos took on a human nature at the incarnation and retains that human nature forever because Christ went on to live perfectly righteous life, died on the cross to atone for our sins, was buried, rose again from the dead, was resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father as our advocate, and he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. But The point where Rohr is right is that Christ as the Logos existed before the individual person of Jesus, because there was a beginning point of the incarnation. But the wrong direction that Rohr takes this is that he wants to make the idea of the Christ a universal principle and presence that is everywhere active in the world, including non-Christian religions. So it's not so much that he's talking about the Logos having pre-existed before the incarnation, or that Christ in his incarnate state has cosmic scope and cosmic power but he's really trying to detach Christ from all the specific work that he did on our behalf. So he doesn't really like the idea that, that Jesus is uniquely a revelation of God or that he is in a category all by himself. He says that. He says uh, Jesus is God he has to say that as a Roman Catholic but he thinks that basically everything else is God too. So let me read something from page 14 of his book. He says, "The Christ mystery is not a one-time event, but an ongoing process through time, as constant as the light that fills the universe." Interesting he says of John 14:6, "I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. He says that Jesus is not speaking of himself as an individual, but as a universal Christ, which is the universal way, truth, and life. Goodness. I mean, if he's not talking about himself as Jesus, the Christ, the agent, the actor in space-time history, who else could he be talking about? You know, he is Jesus, the Christ, the only Christ, and he is the one mediator between God and man. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, what Rohr is trying to do is use the language of Scripture and put that language into a non-Christian worldview which is, as I said, either pantheism or panentheism. And this is no small mistake. And it's really very much like the kind of pantheistic accounts of Christ, Christologies, that I addressed many years ago in my book, Jesus in an Age of Controversy. But the difference is that Rohr is a Roman Catholic priest and he uses the Christian language, and he's appealing to many Christians.
1: So you have kind of unpacked for us his view of Jesus and the Christ, but you said there are things that he gets right. So overall, would you say his view is mostly Orthodox? At the same time, you uh, mentioned earlier that you think some of his teachings are heresy. So yeah. what about his view? Is it is it Orthodox?
2: No, I don't think it is, because fundamentally— He confuses the creator and the creation, either as a pantheist or a panentheist. And secondly, he doesn't have a biblical understanding of sin as that which separates us from God and must be overcome through the work, the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. So at one point in the book, he says that we have never been separate From God? Well, we are separate from God in at least two senses. First, we're creatures. We didn't create the universe. We're not all good, all powerful, all-knowing, all-wise. So we are separate by virtue of being finite creations of God. We're distinct from God. And secondly, it's very clear throughout Scripture that our sins separate us from God morally. So we are separate from God metaphysically as creatures, and we are separate from God morally as sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that God is isolated from us way up there somehow in an unapproachable heaven. No, he is very near to all of us. And we should call out to him as creatures who should recognize him and call out to him for the forgiveness of sins and for the life everlasting. And that is only offered through the once for all incarnation of Christ. So, when you really dig a little deeper under the surface, you find that Rohr's concept of God is not a biblical God. And his concept of salvation is really not that Christ is our substitute, that he took our place on the cross. Christ is more like the one who shows us how to reconnect with God. So he holds this perennialist tradition. The problem is not really that our sins have alienated us and estranged us from God. It's that we don't realize our true self. So let me give you a quote to back up what I just said from page 44 of his book, The Universal Christ. Quote, I have never been separate from God, nor can I be, except in my mind. Oh, that is so pantheistic. It's the idea that we are all divine. Everything is one. However, I have this inadequate consciousness or this faulty awareness that makes me think that I am not divine, that I am less than the supreme being. So the answer is not reconciliation through the substitutionary death of Christ on my behalf. It's rather to clear away the wrong thinking and the hazy, fuzzy consciousness that keeps us from experiencing this divine flow of reality. So I think the whole flow of scripture is against Rohr's ideas. But let me give you Isaiah 59 too. your iniquities have separated you from your God, your sins have hidden his faith from you, so he will not hear. Read the book of Romans, especially chapters one through eight, you see that the problem of humanity is that we have not rightly related ourselves to God. We have not worshiped him. We are guilty, we have substituted idols in the place of God and god's wrath abides against sinful creatures he is perfectly just and holy but he is also perfectly loving so this is what makes up the cross because the death of christ has to do with him paying a debt we could not pay and him taking the punishment that we deserve and that this work Reconciles us to God. We're given a new life through the work of Christ, that we are in union with Christ, that we are born again, our sins are forgiven, we're given the perfect righteousness of Christ. He takes our unrighteousness and He gives us His righteousness, the great exchange. And if you don't believe that humans are metaphysically distinct from God, and if you don't believe humans are morally separate from God, then you will have a false and heretical idea of Jesus, his person and work. It doesn't matter how many biblical words you use. The issue is whether those words agree with Scripture.
1: Now, you mentioned what the biblical view of sin is. So what is his view of sin? Because you said he's really using Christian words, but basically giving us a Buddhist or Hindu mm-hmm. view of the world and who Jesus is and mixing it in with those Christian words. So how does he see sin?
2: Well, sin. Does is he all... think we sin at all? Well, I think he'd say that we sin out of selfishness, uh, but really sin is a result of not realizing who you are, that you've never been separate from God. You are always one with God, but somehow You lose track of that. You lose sight of it. And so through contemplative prayer and other means, he thinks you can basically get into the divine flow again. He says something really telling on page 140. He says that Jesus' death was not some bloody transaction required by God's offended justice in order to rectify the problem of human sin. So when we think of the blood of Christ and the offering of Christ on our behalf, one element of the atonement, and it's, I think, the central element, is what's called propitiation. And that's a technical term that the NIV translates as atoning sacrifice. But the King James, I think, is more specific and better when it uses... That word, propitiation, which means to take away wrath or to reconcile two parties by virtue of some action. So if our sins are propitiated, it means that the wrath of God is assuaged, that Christ is our substitute, that he voluntarily, in agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit, came to represent us he lived the life we couldn't live a life of perfect righteousness and then as the lamb of god he offered himself in our place so he is actually fulfilling all the intimations and types of this of the whole hebrew sacrificial system the various types of sacrifices so when john the baptist sees Jesus for the first time he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world so in a sense Jesus death is like a disinfectant it it takes our sins away from us but Jesus is also in a sense like a scapegoat in that he will take uh, the penalty for sin even though he never sinned and god continued to love him at all times he voluntarily will step in and take our place. And that did require the death, the sacrifice of Christ. And it was a transaction. And it was required because God is equally just and equally loving. So the cross shows us the love. God so loved the world, he sent his son. And Christ came into the world to save sinners. Shows the love and also the justice because jesus was the willing vicarious victim he said on the cross quoting psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me and god did not ultimately forsake him but jesus experienced the punishment that we deserve and only he can do that so roar is really vitiating the cross of its essential meaning. And that is no small thing. In fact, War never speaks of the need of sinners to repent, uh, to receive salvation. He dismisses all biblical language of atonement, like sacrifice, expiation, paying the price, propitiation, as merely contextual metaphors that reflect a fallacious transactional thinking. He gives lots of caricatures of the substitutionary, propitiary death of Christ. He doesn't really deal with it honestly. He's actually, in fact, pretty flippant. And so We've gotta drop that whole idea of any kind of bloody transaction. And if we do that, we've actually denied something at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart, the very center of redemption. Uh, so it's not so much that for, for Roar. Uh, Christ doesn't reconcile the world to a holy God. It's somehow that the world is already divine. And we somehow just need to get in touch with the flow of this universal Christ energy. And that is a profoundly unbiblical and heretical idea.
1: So what specifically then, as you've just kind of talked about, is his view of salvation? You've talked a few times about the divine flow. I mean, I'm wondering, is all in his view? Do all people of all religions who've ever lived will they be in God's presence or you know heaven if he believes in heaven? But what happens to people who don't have any interest in the divine flow? I mean, if what if I'm an atheist, I don't care about divine flow. What about hell? Does he believe hell exists, or d- would he hold to like maybe a Hindu view of reincarnation? Like maybe you didn't believe in divine flow this life, but if you come back. Maybe in the next life you'll, you know, on earth is something else. You might believe in the divine flow. Because what does he do with people who aren't out of any spiritual tradition? They, They don't care to have a flow at all.
2: Well, I'm not sure that he directly speaks to that in this book. He might in his other books, but let's just talk about his metaphysics. He thinks that there's no distinction between God and the world. There's no sin in terms of a moral offense against an infinitely holy God. So if that's the case, then eventually everybody's got to go with the flow. Eventually everybody's got to realize this one reality. So I can't give you a page number in the book where he denies there is an eternal literal hell. He might. I mean, I need to go back and take a look at that, but just given his metaphysics, he couldn't affirm it. Because So he
1: basically believes in a universalism of all people, all religions, everything from what you're saying, because if you know all Religions have some you know way in to get into the divine flow. It seems to me that all people will be saved that have ever lived.
2: that would certainly follow from his worldview, but see, I don't know if he necessarily says that everyone is saved. maybe he just puts that you know in the realm of mystery or something like that. He's got a lot of references to hell. I can give you one quote this this is pretty helpful, so. Rohr does say that hell, which is not a geographical place, but a very real state of consciousness, all rewards and punishments must primarily be seen as, first of all, now, and inherent in good and bad behavior. So you see how he wants to make hell really a state of lower consciousness, not a place of eternal punishment because we have fail to be reconciled to a holy God.
1: So I wonder what happens to people after they die, then they just, if you didn't get in with the divine flow, you just, your consciousness ceases to exist. You're not an eternal being of any kind.
2: I'm not sure what his take would be on that, but I just found another reference. He says that we do not understand the metaphors of hell or purgatory. So I think where scripture, scripture doesn't teach purgatory at all, but Where you have references to divine eternal punishment, Rohr would want to make those into metaphors for states of consciousness. That fits his overall worldview. So, given that everything is divine or everything is pulsating with the divine, sin is not a separation from God, then there's no place for hell. You know, there's no room for it, essentially, in his worldview, which would go against the teaching of Jesus. No one taught more about the dangers of losing your soul and of eternal punishment than Jesus. Uh, But Rohr is way more interested in this universal Christ energy than he is on the specifics of what Jesus taught.
1: So, you know, you did mention it a few times, as I said earlier. So do you really land on the view that you would call the majority of Richard Rohr's beliefs heretical, even though he is, you know, still an ordained and practicing Roman Catholic priest.
2: Yeah, I do. And as I wrote the review, I was reluctant to say that because I don't want to falsely accuse someone of something extremely serious. But I have been studying other religions, cults, the occult for about 45 years. And Before I was a Christian, I was interested in these pantheistic ideas. So as I read Rohr and did the research, I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt repeatedly. But after a while, he didn't deserve it. So I had to come down and say that what he's teaching is heretical. And I think we need to remember what Paul says in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, or I'll add Richard Rohr, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. And in fact, that's how I end my review. Those are sobering words, but the gospel is nothing to toy with, it's nothing to play with, it's nothing to corrupt with non Christian Eastern. Metaphysics, and that essentially, I believe, is what Richard Rohr has done. And it's actually more dangerous with a Richard Rohr than it would be with a obviously New Age teacher like Deepak Chopra or something like that, because uh, we know pretty much that Chopra is not a Christian. Although, actually, Chopra wrote two books about Jesus, so I guess he could, which are terrible. I guess he could. try to deceive you using Christian words too, he could. But we don't think of Deepak Chopra as a Christian. You know, he's not a Roman Catholic priest. We think of him probably as a Hindu or a New Age thinker. But Rohr is a Franciscan priest and he uses biblical language all the time. Uh, Nevertheless, I said this before, but people can use Christian words and not have biblical meanings. Very common. So Walter Martin in his classic book, Kingdom of the Cults, Has a chapter called Overcoming the Language Barrier. This is true for Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, people in Christian science, and it's also true for Richard Ward. What do you mean by God? What do you mean by atonement? What do you mean by hell? And we have to be good critical thinkers on these matters.
1: So I think a lot of evangelicals, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, would kind of come to roar through the side door of the Enneagram because it's so popular and people talk about their Enneagram number all the time and they just say, well, it's just this harmless personality test, but it just helps myself, you know, understand myself better. And we have two articles, the original one that we was written actually by a Roman Catholic priest back in the early nineties, as well as our more recent one by Ann Kennedy. We talk about the Enneagram, but what, why do you think so many Protestants are influenced by Rohr. What's you know so attractive? Do you think that they think, oh, he has a lot to say because I'm learning about the Enneagram and it teaches me about myself. So what else can he teach me about mm. Jesus?
2: I think that's part of it. People kind of come in through the Enneagram; it's kind of a kind of a gateway drug to the other things that he's saying. And I think the Enneagram is fallacious. I don't think there's good exper- experimental evidence for it. And Uh, it has strong occult connections, so that's bad enough, but it's not that following the Enneagram or thinking it's a good personality tool is going to lead you to deny the gospel or to not deny the biblical teaching on the incarnation, not so. But if you read the universal Christ and you believe it, then you're believing a false gospel, and that is much more serious. So I'd say the Enneagram is a mistake of discernment, but The universal Christ is a heresy.
1: Well, finally, on a much lighter note than heresy, I have some fun rapid fire questions for you. So it's been snowing a lot across the country. And what do you prefer more? Rain or snow?
2: You don't have to shovel rain. So I prefer rain.
1: And because it's snowing, what do you like to wear over there in Colorado? Do you prefer sweaters or sweatshirts?
2: probably sweatshirts, yeah. You know.
1: And at the grocery store, do you go through self-checkout or are you a regular checkout person with a cashier?
2: I don't go to the grocery store anymore because of COVID. I have my wife do it, but uh, <laughs> I kind of like to talk to people. Uh, I know some cashiers at various stores. I enjoy talking to them. So it depends. I'd say both am.
1: Well, thank you, Doug, for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast.
2: Well, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest has been Dr. Douglas Grothuis. He has written an online, exclusive, very in-depth book review of The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. You can read his article called A Heretic's Christ – of False Salvation, which is one of our online exclusive articles, if you're a subscriber to our magazine, you can access that article at Equip.org by logging into your account. And access to these online exclusive articles is one of the benefits for being a subscriber to the Christian Research Journal. And thank you for listening. We'd like to connect to you, so please subscribe to the Bible Answer Man YouTube channel and join in the conversation in the comments section and in the live chat when we have premier videos. Please follow the Bible Answer Man page on Facebook and on Twitter. You will find us at Hank Anagraph, Bible Answer Man, Christian Research Institute, and Christian Research Journal, as well as on Instagram at the Bible Answer Man account. You won't want to miss every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern when we live stream the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Canegraaff at our website, equip.org. In addition, please subscribe to the Hank Unplugged podcast. Hank gets out of the studio and into his study and engages in in-depth, free-flowing, essential Christian conversations on critical issues with some of the most interesting, informative, and inspirational people on the planet. You'll want to head on over to Equip.org because there you're going to find thousands of free resources for you in articles and past broadcasts, our podcasts, and videos. And thank you for all the ways in which you partner with the Christian Research Institute.